When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast, the show that explores the background of Tolkien's amazing world from the very beginning. Welcome back to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast. You can probably hear in my voice. I am I'm fighting a little bit of a cold. I'm struggling to get this episode out this week, but I hope that this goes okay and that this isn't too much of a distraction from the content. So welcome back. This is your host, Tom or Robots, and we are about to conclude Tour's story, at least for the coming to Gondolin part in the story of the fall of Gondolin, which we don't actually get to, as I described at the beginning. This story is unfinished. It's one of the unfinished tales. It's the reason why it's in this book. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't have a conclusion. There's a sort of conclusion here in the place that it actually ends, but it's not the full hero's journey. And I think that's something important to note here is that Tolkien, whether he realized it or not, and I'm not 100% sure if he was aware of Joseph Campbell's uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, where he lays out the hero's journey and how similar these stories are across mythologies and the different steps in the hero's journey, or as he would put it, the archetypal hero in the world of myths. Now, that book was published in 1949, so there is a good chance that Tolkien would have read that or at least been aware of it later on in his life. Uh, but I have a sense that he probably was already aware of something very similar in his understanding of myth and heroes in myth already without it needing to be formalized in this kind of concept. But whether he was aware of it on his own or whether he was somebody who read Joseph Campbell. That's not something I've looked up specifically, but whatever the case is there, he seems to have a sense of it because in the hero's journey, the hero goes through about 12 different steps. Generally, there's the call to adventure, the refusal of the call, the meeting of a mentor, the crossing of a threshold, tests, allies and enemies the approach to the inmost cave that's step six and i think that's about where we get with tours story this idea of going to the heart of darkness you've noticed throughout his journey he goes through each of these steps and we could probably chart the ones that i've listed so far and explain some of the similarities so this idea of meeting a mentor whether that is ulmo or veronwe and crossing a threshold, this idea of uh, the tests that in the trials that he goes through in this place of darkness where he is more and more exhausted and hungry and literally goes into this cave to go through these gates that we're going to discuss in today's episode. So there's a lot of similarities here with that journey and with what's going on. And in today's episode, 
we at least get through the different gates. And these were briefly explained in the Silmarillion, so we'll go back over each of them as we go through and some of the other details that happen along the way. Also, this is going to be a longer episode. So instead of cutting this into two separate episodes or doing a smaller episode and then a bonus episode only for the patrons, I figured that we would wrap this up in one big episode. So you're getting kind of a double episode, but without the extra bonus for the patrons. And that's also going to help me save my voice from doing even more content today uh, in order to make sure that this gets out and all of you have something to listen to. So I hope that's a good plan and let's just go with it. Let's see where this goes. Here we go. So Tour and Veronwe descend further into this dark passage, and they are being escorted now by the guards of Gondolin. They're being escorted very carefully with two guards in front of them and three behind, which makes sense. Have an extra person behind in case they decide to flee or try to, I don't know, try some shenanigans or whatever. Um, but they're marching through this dark passageway. And again, there's very little bits of light that are gleaming through and it's transitioning from an area that looks very natural, winding with dirt on the floor to an area that looks very intentionally designed, a straight way with a level floor and some light gleaming through. Then they catch a glimpse of of an archway it's described like this thus they came at length to a wide arch with tall pillars upon either hand hewn in the rock and between hung a great portcullis of crossed wooden bars marvelously carved and studded with nails of iron and as they approach it Alemakil goes up he touches it and rises silently that's all just a brief touch and the gate opens. We don't know the mechanism here. We're not sure exactly if he's tripped a lever or if maybe somebody on the other side heard him touch the door like a knock, but it's not described like that. It's described that he touches it and rises silently. That's it. The gate opens. Then we get this transition. We just went from a natural looking area to something that was clearly made by the hands of elves or men clearly elves in this situation to something grander than even that they walk up to the end of a ravine it's as if they are looking up and down the sheer cliffside of something so gigantic the description here says here the hands of the valar themselves in ancient wars of the world's beginning had wrested the great mountains asunder and the sides of the rift were sheer as if axe cloven and they lowered up to heights unguessable they're seeing something that was created not just by the decay of time or the shifting of land masses but something that would have been designed and ripped asunder by the hands of the Valar themselves. And we get this description of Tour looking up 
almost directly up because the sheer sides of this cliff face are so steep. They're like looking up directly to the sides of mountaintops. And above him are the stars. Faint glimmers in the distance. And then he sees a stream bed laid and paved with stone winding upward till it vanishes in the shadows. Almost to say, this is the direction to go. But Alemakil doesn't give them too much time to enjoy the natural beauty of the situation. He says, you have passed the first gate, the gate of wood. There lies the way. We must hasten. Now remember, there are seven gates. And they go in a very specific order, from wood to more prized materials, more valuable materials, until they get to the end. And we'll discuss that when we get there. As they continue to march on, there's a cold wind that blows toward them, into their faces, as they walk through this chasm-like tunnel. And, and it's hard to get a real clear glimpse of, at least mentally in my mind, of what this looks like. They've been going through tunnels, but the sections that they come out are deep inside the actual bones of this mountain. And in certain places, it opens up and you can see the stars above them. And Tour makes a comment on this on this cold wind. He says, cold blows the wind from the hidden kingdom. Veronway responds, yea, indeed. To a stranger, it might seem that pride has made the servants of Turgen pitiless. Long and hard seem the leagues of the seven gates to the hungry and wayworn. He's referencing clearly here that Tour and himself are starving at this point, and that this seems like quite the journey to go through to just simply get from one place to another. Alemakel responds, he explains basically the need for all seven of these gates. He says, if our law were less stern, long ago, guile and hatred would have entered and destroyed us. That you know well. But we are not pitiless. Here there is no food, and the stranger may not go back through a gate he has passed. Endure then a little, and at the second gate, you shall be eased. Basically, we aren't monsters. We're just doing what we need to do in order to be safe. And that doesn't mean that you're going to have to suffer this entire time. Tour responds, it is well. Either signifying that he trusts them at this point, or that he's going to be okay enough to get to the next gate at least. He's, he's trooping. He's moving along. And now that they were past the first gate, which was shut behind them, Alemichil is alone with Veronway. He says, there is no need more of guards. Basically, he knows they're stuck. If they turn and run, they'll run into other guards at the gate in either direction. So he goes alone with them to the next gate. The passage to the next gate takes a while. It's described as some half league from the wooden gate. They go up some stairs, winding slopes, and the daunting shadow of the cliff is looming over them the whole time. In the wall was a great archway above the road, but it seemed that masons had blocked it with a single mighty stone. They noticed this as they're walking forward. As they draw near, its dark and polished face gleamed in the light of a white lamp that hung above the midst of the arch. So picture this, a great stone gateway 
with a stone slab in it and a single white light hanging down in front that the light is now bouncing off the polished rock. Elimichil says, here stands the second gate, the gate of stone. Notice we've gone from wood to stone. And it has a mysterious mechanism as well. It says, going up to it, he thrust lightly upon it. It turned upon an unseen pivot until its edge was toward them. The door seems to like spin in the middle. And the way was open upon either side. And they passed through into a court where stood many armed guards clad in gray. No word was spoken, but Alemichil led his charges to a chamber beneath the northern tower, and their food and wine was brought to them, and they were permitted to rest a while. And this goes back to old timey times. You might be thinking, why not water? Wine would stay better. And oftentimes in the ancient and medieval worlds, these older time periods, wine was used in order to make sure that you could have something to drink and it would stay, whereas water would, of course, grow mold and other things in it. The alcohol level in the wine was also lower so that it was still actually hydrating your body rather than making you less hydrated. So just just a little side note on that. And in this situation, Olympikil knows that the food and the wine isn't a whole lot. They don't have a lot to give them, but they do have something. And he says, scant may the fair seem, but if your claim be proved hereafter, it shall richly be amended. Basically, this is all we've got right now. Sorry, but if you guys are who you say you are and you're doing this thing for Olmo and the king approves of it, then don't worry. You're going to have a feast later. It'll be fine. And Tour again says it is enough. Faint were the heart that needed better healing. Basically, listen, I'm so hungry at this point. Anything would have been fine. And after a short rest, they move on and they reach the third gate, the bronze gate. It's described like this, a great twofold door hung with shields and plates of bronze, wherein were wrought many figures and strange signs. Upon the wall above its lintel were three square towers, roofed and clad with copper, that by some device of smithcraft were ever bright and gleamed as fire in the rays of the red lamps ranged like torches along the wall. I can imagine this in my mind with the red light of the torches on the wall reflecting in the different bumps and shapes and crevices of all the things that were carved on this actual gate. In the dark, this would have shown exquisitely. And as with many things, having to do with the realm of the fairy. Now, be aware, we've talked about this before. They are descending or actually ascending at this point into the realm of the fairy. It becomes both more beautiful, but also more dangerous at the same time. These guards were an even greater number and they had mail that glowed like dull fire and the blades of their axes were red. And this group were given a description of where they're from, which group of elves they are. It says of the kindred of the Sindar of Nevrast, for the most part, were those that held this gate. So we're getting these little descriptions. The elves who work these gates are getting more and more, could you say, mysterious? 
the types of elves that you're less likely to run into as we get further and further and closer to the Noldor themselves. Now notice, not just the gate itself being made out of bronze, and these soldiers numbered in a an amount higher than they've seen so far with weapons and armor that are more dangerous. But the passage that they go through here is the most toilsome road that they've reached yet. It says, for in the midst of the Orfalk, the slope was at the steepest, and as they climbed, Tour saw the mightiest of the walls looming dark above them. This is the steepest, most dangerous part of their journey so far. And then they reach the fourth gate, the gate of Rhythen Iron. High and black was the wall and lit with no lamps. Four towers of iron stood upon it, and upon the two inner towers was set an image of a great eagle wrought in iron, even the likeness of King Thorondor himself, as he would alight upon a mountain from the high airs. But as Tour stood before the gate, it seemed to his wonder that he was looking through boughs and streams of imperishable trees into a pale glade of the moon, for a light came through the traceries of the gate, which were wrought and hammered into the shapes of trees, with writhing roots and woven branches laden with leaves and flowers. And as he passed through, he saw how this could be, for the wall was of great thickness, and there was not one grill, but three in line, so set that to one who approached in the middle of the way, each formed part of the device, but the light beyond was the light of day. This is a very dense description. In my mind, what this looks like is a gate, an actual gate that you can see through, and it has not just one layer of iron bars that are bent and shaped like a tree, but it's not just one layer. It's not just like the gate to your uh, your backyard where it's just like one layer of bars uh, across the gate. This is three layers and it's deep and interesting, multifaceted. The roots and the branches and the leaves and the flowers all intertwine across all three layers. And for the most part, it creates this thick door that you wouldn't be able to pass through without some means of breaking it down. But yet, there's still light that comes from the other side. The light of day. The sun is starting to rise. We have just journeyed with Tour past the lowest point of descent. This is the, is the bottom. We've been to the bottom of the inmost cave, of the heart of darkness. And we are now ascending out of it. Not just physically, not just in the deeps and the dark places of this journey that he's been on into these caves across these gates, the danger surrounding him, the steepness of the sides of the cliffs, the darkness, the lack of light, the lack of food. He's now fed. He's now ascending. He's now journeying past the steepest, most difficult parts to go through to this gate that opens up to daylight. From here on out, it gets easier. That was the lowest point, literally and symbolically at the same time. 
And this is proclaimed to us with this wonderful sight. For they had climbed now to a great height above the lowlands where they began. And beyond the iron gate, the road ran almost level. Notice it's so much easier to walk here. They're past all the difficulties. Moreover, they had passed the crown and heart of the Akoriath, and the mountain towers now fell swiftly down toward the inner hills, and the ravine opened wider, and its sides became less sheer. Its long shoulders were mantled with white snow, and the light of the sky, snow mirrored, came white as moonlight through a glimmering mist that filled the air. They're going from darkness to light. They're going from black to white. From something scary to something beautiful. Now they pass through the lines of the iron guards that stood behind the gate. Black were their mantles and their mail and long shields. And their faces were masked with visors bearing each an eagle's beak. I'm sure these would have been amazing to look upon. But this moment would not be complete without a semblance of nature, something alive. Then Alemachil went before them, and they followed him into the pale light. And Tours saw beside the way a sward of grass, where, like stars, bloomed the white flowers of Ulos, the evermind that knows no season and withers not. This grass has flowers that are blooming. These flowers are referenced and grow on the mounds of the kings of Rohan. And in that moment, they're symbolic. We know that they grow where dead men rest. There's a quote in the two towers about that. Now, are there dead men here? I don't think that's the sense of this. In the case of the burial of the lords or the kings of Rohan, I think it has a reference to do with going back to nature, but also from the death of important people or people in general comes other life springing forth and may also be symbolic that the lives of the now dead brought something good through their deeds in their lives. And in this case, I think it has more to do with the hero's journey. This idea that even when descending to the deepest parts or even the need to descend to the deepest parts of your life, of your journey, it's in doing that that you're changed and you bring forth life. You bring forth hope, other, other elements that the hero is responsible for in the story. This is symbolic that they are now moving on past the darkness. So let me tell you a little story. You know that we get sponsors on these podcasts and Yuffie, who does these smart locks with video cameras in them, reached out and they sent me a smart door lock with a 2K camera, a doorbell and a finger reader, all the bells and whistles. And I was like, OK, cool. They sent it to me. I already have one on my back door. When I opened this up and installed it, I was like, why didn't I go with Yuffie to begin with? Because this is 
is a step above the one that I've been using. The finger reader just works. The 2K camera is so clear. I can see when somebody's at the front door, if it's Amazon or if it's somebody trying to sell me something. It even has night vision and works in the dark. It makes me feel so much safer. Plus, my son can just put his finger on the door and just come right in when he gets home from school. He doesn't have to worry about losing keys and you don't even have to change the batteries in these because it's got like 10,000 milliwatt hour battery that lasts for like four months. Go check these out today. Search for Eufy Video Lock, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock, or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door. Again, search Eufy Video Lock. I think you'll love it. All right, I hope you're enjoying the ending of this story. We have more Unfinished Tales to get to in the future. Future. Words are hard. Talking is very talking is always a little bit hard for me uh, with a cold right now. It's it's especially hard. I hope, hope it's not too terrible. But we got to take a minute. Thank our patrons and welcome two of our newest patrons, uh, Marquita J and Andreas. Welcome to the Patreon. I hope you're enjoying what you get over there. And also we have to shout out our VIP tier patrons. VIP peer patrons uh, here. Let's see if I can get through this as quick as possible. AK music lover, Anakin Skywalker, Apollo, Aragorn, the third, Austin C as razzle, Barney D Bo, black squirrel, Brandy D Chewbacca, cutter Metalworks, David S David M divine madman, Drupal, esoteric rage, fulcrum, Gimli, a break, Gemma D Jesse P J eggs, Jezer, Kate L Katie S lore FC, Lori B Mason, Weathertop, Michael M Nick K nostrils of Sauron, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Peace Lutheran Church, Rosie Rose, Sam B, Sauron for Life, Seiju, TJT, and Tour Son of Hoor. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for being here. And if you are curious about why all these people are signing up, head over to patreon.com slash L-O-T-R Lorecast. Check out the different things you can get, like ad-free episodes, t-shirts, getting shout-outs, uh, all sorts of fun things. Um, thank you for all of you and all of your support. I, of course, couldn't do this without you, and it means the world to me so much. Um, we've got one review. If you leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, I'll read it out on a future episode of the show. This one is from Smiley Face, Smiley Face, Smiley Face, one, two, three. It doesn't actually say Smiley Face. They're just little emojis. Uh, from the United States, who writes, Smiley Face, five stars. I like Lord of the Rings and can't understand the Silmarillion. And now it makes sense. Cool. That's great. Thanks so much for the review. I'm glad that it makes sense now. And I've helped fix that for you. Um, <laughs> thanks for being here and leaving reviews and all of that stuff. Also, thank you if you've rated the show on Spotify, five stars, if you've shared it with your friends, any of that stuff. All right, let's get on. We've got a few more gates to get to. Here we go. The group journeys past these little white flowers, and eventually they make their way to the silver gate. It says here, the wall of the fifth gate was built of white marble and was low and broad, and its parapet was a trellis of silver between five great globes of marble, and there stood many archers robed in white. The gate was in shape as three parts of a circle and wrought with silver and pearl of Nevrast in likeness of the moon. But above the gate, upon the midmost globe, stood an image of the white tree, Telperion, wrought of silver and malachite, 
with flowers made of great pearls of Balar. This must have been a beautiful sight. The shining silver gate, white-robed archers looking dangerous and yet fair at the same time. The shapes designed like the moon. And notice the connection to the moon and the white tree, Telperion, because they're connected. This gate is symbolic and a remembrance of the past, not only the past, but also the current situation with the way light works in the world and all of that. It harkens back to those days in Valinar with the trees, but it also realizes the reality, the current situation. Now, of course, there's more guards than just the ones you can see while approaching the gate. Beyond the gate, in a wide court paved with marble, green and white, stood archers in silver mail and white-crested helms, a hundred upon either hand. Then Alemakil led Tour and Veronwe through their silent ranks, and they entered upon a long, white road that ran straight toward the sixth gate. And as they went... The grass sward became wider, and among the white stars of Ulos, there opened many small flowers like eyes of gold. There's a transition here. Not only are they between these two gates, the gates are not as far apart as previous gates were, but they're beautifully designed. There are a hundred soldiers on either side, a white road, and yet more life, more grass more white stars of flowers along the way, and some that transition from white to gold. So they came to the Golden Gate, the last of the ancient gates of Turgon that were wrought before the Narniath. And it was much like the Gate of Silver, save that the wall was built of yellow marble, and the globes and parapet were of red gold, and there were six globes, and in the midst upon a golden pyramid was set an image of Laurelin, the tree of the sun, with flowers wrought of topaz in long clusters upon chains of gold. And the gate itself was adorned with discs of gold, many rayed, and likenesses of the sun, set amid devices of garnet and topaz and yellow diamonds. In the court beyond were arrayed three hundred archers with long bows, and their mail was gilded, and tall golden plumes rose from their helmets, and their great round shields were red as flame. After being in the dark for this long, this sight must have been stunning to their eyes. The gold colors here, the, the reds and the yellows, all of these warm bright colors reflecting off of this beautiful gate and not just the gate the passageway beyond the armor the soldiers are wearing everything is beautiful and yet so dangerous now notice also that this is the last of the original gates but it is not the final gate that currently stands here now and up to this point there's a pattern wood gives way to stone stone to bronze, bronze to iron, rhythm iron, not just iron, but rhythm iron. 
it's as if we are going forward with the development of the technology of actually using materials and materials that would have been used in war wooden weapons to stone weapons to bronze weapons like the bronze age of our own history to the iron age and then to things that are more beautiful and even more valuable silver and gold the pattern goes from items or materials that are useful in warfare and become more dangerous up until the point where you get to silver and gold but then increase in beauty and value so the overarching theme here is an increase in beauty and value with certain elements being more effective in warfare. The final gate though is of steel. Steel is not something that is created simply for its value, like shaping silver or gold. It is something that is designed for its utility especially in warfare steel weapons changed warfare forever they were lighter and stronger harder to break and depending on the situations may have been very valuable it says now sunlight fell upon the further road and the walls of the hills were low on either side and green notice the passageway is even easier at this point and the hills were green except for their tops where the snow made them white. Elemichal hastened forward, for the way was short to the seventh gate, named the Great, the Gate of Steel that Maglin wrought after the return from the Narniath across the wide entrance to the Orfolk Echor. This is the extra gate. It did not exist here previously. It was not part of the original plan, but it was something that Meglin crafted, and Meglin was very good at crafting in order to make sure that Gondolin was even more safe after the Narniath Arnoidiad, after so many people, elves, and men died at the hands of Morgoth. And hiding Gondolin became so much more important. And the description of this is very interesting. It says, no wall stood there, but on either hand were two round towers of great height, many windowed, tapering in seven stories to a turret of bright steel. This would have seemed extremely tall, especially in the eyes of people from previous time periods. For example, I got a chance to go to London a number of years ago and got to tour a bunch of these old buildings, towers, museums, learned a lot of the history of the city up until about, I don't know, maybe two, 300 years ago, the tallest buildings outside of the stone buildings may like castles, uh, the, the cathedral, those kinds of things. The wooden buildings that most people lived in were three stories tall at the most. That's as tall as the majority of the city was except for these stone buildings. And clearly this is a different world. It's a fantasy realm, all of that. But I think that you have to look at this through the eyes of somebody who would have been familiar with 
ancient and medieval architecture and not just the pieces that stick around like the stone parts like the big giant stone buildings that we can see now today because they are made out of stone and they're still there most of the buildings would have been made out of wood wood buildings have an upper limit so to see two towers standing beside this gate that are seven stories high with windows up and down them windows that archers could shoot you from must have been extremely intimidating it goes on and says and between the towers there stood a mighty fence of steel that rusted not but glittered cold and white seven great pillars of steel there were tall with the height and girth of strong young trees but ending in a bitter spike that rose to the sharpness of a needle and between the pillars were seven crossbars of steel and in each space seven times seven rods of steel upright with heads like the broad blades of spears but in the center above the midmost pillar and the greatest was raised a mighty image of the king helm of Turgon, the crown of the hidden kingdom set about with diamonds. The gate itself is dangerous. It's designed with points like spears, like weapons, almost like this is a reminder that if they can make a gate that looks as dangerous as this, then what do their weapons look like? And you can't forget the decorations either. This crown set with diamonds in the gate itself. Who puts that much wealth in a gate? These kinds of things were designed in order to intimidate people, not just with the threat of their lives. The idea that this is a dangerous thing, these towers, this gate, if you approach this as an enemy, then you will be met with severe violence, but not just a threat from that side, the threat of wealth. Who has this much wealth to build a gate that looks like this? And what else can that wealth do? How much power do they actually hold? This entire situation, the passageway through all of these gates, the increasing design and wealth of each gate and danger of each section of this journey is designed not only just to keep the people on the other side safe, but also to psychologically intimidate anybody who would approach. If you can break the morale of your enemy, then you may not even need to swing your weapon. It goes on and says, no gate or door could tour see in this mighty hedge of steel. But as he drew near through the spaces between its bars, there came, as it seemed to him, a dazzling light. And he shaded his eyes and stood still in dread and wonder. But Alemica went forward and no gate opened to his touch. This is different from the previous ones. But he struck upon a bar and the fence rang like a harp of many strings, giving forth clear notes in harmony that ran from tower to tower. And this is an amazing description because not only is this gate extremely dangerous, filled with wealth, 
but it also resonates like a musical instrument. This is something designed by elves. And there was a very specific purpose for this. Straight away, they are issued riders from the towers. But before those of the North Tower came one upon a white horse, and he dismounted and strode towards them. And high and noble, as was Elemichal, greater and more lordly was Ecthelion, lord of the fountains, at that time warden of the great gate. All in silver he was clad, and upon his shining helm there was set a spike of steel pointed with a diamond. And as his esquire took his shield, it shimmered as if it were bedewed with drops of rain that were indeed a thousand studs of crystal. Elemichel saluted him and said, Here have I brought Varanwe, Aranweon, returning from Balar. And here is the stranger that he has led hither, who demands to see the king. Then Ecthelion turned to Tour, but he drew his cloak about him and stood silent, facing him. And it seemed to Varanwe that a mist mantled Tour and his stature was increased so that the peak of his high hood overtopped the helm of the elf lord as it were the crest of a gray sea wave riding to the land this description is so interesting we've talked about this before the idea of height and how height conveys a certain level of power authority purity these kinds of themes and in this scene, we know Tour is a tall man. He comes from a lineage of tall men. But in this moment, he appears even taller. Gandalf does this in The Lord of the Rings. This moment where all of a sudden, you see the person for who they really are. And their symbology here too. The way his hood is topped over the helm of the elf lord as if a crest of a gray sea wave riding to the land. Symbolically, he looks like he was sent by Ulmo. And in this moment, Ecthelion looks at Tor, and he's silent for a minute. All of these situations have somebody who takes their time, like at the end of a game show on tv where they they're like let's see if you have the right answer and then they wait like an entire minute and they go oh it's right like like there has to be some sort of build up there right same kind of thing maybe it's an authority thing maybe it's a, a mind game sort of thing or maybe he was taking his time to kind of size up tour before he spoke and he speaks gravely saying you have come to the last gate. Know then that no stranger who passes it shall ever go out again. Say by the door of death. He's basically saying, you may not have realized what you've got yourself into here. Clearly, we cannot ever let you escape. So passing this gate means that you are here forever. And the only way you leave is through death. Speak not ill-boding. If the messenger of the Lord of Waters goes by that door, then all those who dwell here will follow him. 
Lord of the fountains, binder not the messenger of the Lord of waters. Then Veronway and all those who stood near looked again in wonder at Tour, marveling at his words and voice. Remember, Olmo told him he would give Tour the words to speak when he needed it. And to Veronway, it seemed as if he had heard a great voice, but as of one who called from afar off. But to Tour, it seemed that he listened to himself speaking as if another spoke with his mouth. For a while, Echthelion stood silent, looking at Tour, and slowly awe filled his face, as if in the gray shadow of Tour's cloak, he saw visions from far away. Then he bowed and went to the fence and laid hands upon it, and gates opened inward on either side of the pillar of the crown. Then Tour passed through and coining to a high sward that looked out over the valley beyond, he beheld a vision of Gondolin amid the white snow. And so entranced was he that for long he could look at nothing else, for he saw before him a land of vision of his desire out of dreams of longing. Thus he stood and spoke no word. Silent upon either hand stood a host of the army of Gondolin. All of the seven kinds of the seven gates were there represented, but their captains and chieftains were upon horses, white and gray. Then even as they gazed at Tour in wonder, his cloak fell down, and he stood there before them in the mighty livery of Nevrest. And many were there who had seen Turgon himself set these things upon the wall behind the hall seat of Vinyamar. Then Echthelion said at last, Now no further proof is needed, and even the name he claims as son of Hur matters less than this clear truth, that he comes from Ulmo himself. And that's the last line. That's how this unfinished tale ends. And it leaves me with so much, so much longing, I guess you could say, for the rest of this story. We know the details. We know that he goes to Gondolin. We know that he's given a place of honor. We know that the city is attacked. We know that he helps people escape, that his descendants do very important things, that he falls in love. We know what the rest of the story is, at least the outline version, the Silmarillion version. But maybe you feel like I do in reading through this at this level of detail, seeing the conversations for myself, hearing the words in my head or spoken aloud as I read through them, the different things that Tour goes through from leaving to actually meeting Ulmo himself in the ocean to Veronway showing up seemingly out of nowhere to be his guide. The steps of the hero's journey coming to fruition. 
Let's go through them real quick at the end of this episode, because I think they're they're really interesting. The call to adventure, the summoning of Olmo to tour, to get on the road, to get moving, that he's running late, the refusal of the call, the, the doubts that haunt him. And and the, the idea that multiple times during this journey, he slows down and takes his time. He kind of gets a little bit sidetracked along the way. The meeting of the mentor. Now, is that mentor Ulmo or is it Veronwe? I think it's probably more Veronwe. Crossing the threshold, the going to a place that is dangerous, the moving from these safe places where they're at least alone to heading closer and closer to Gondolin to find this hidden gate and coming across the orcs. Tests, allies, and enemies, the trials that they go through along this, barely escaping the, the orcs on the, on the road, uh, suffering from hunger and exhaustion along the way, the scary things they come across, the, the, everything from the eagles to the weather itself fighting against them. And then finally, to the approach in the innermost cave, the inmost cave, the heart of darkness and the ordeal where he is challenged to go through this. You could say that we get through all of that finally to a reward. The acknowledgement at this final moment by Ekthelion that he comes from Ulmo himself, that his words are true. And the proof there at that moment where he is standing in front of a host of so many soldiers, so many gatekeepers in all of their different gear. And in that moment, it's revealed that he's wearing the armor that was designed by Turgen, that was left there for the hero that would come in their time of need. And he shows up. Right at that moment, it's revealed. And he didn't know that. You would maybe ask the question, well, why didn't he show the armor when he first got to the gate the first time? He did not realize that this was a symbol to these people. He thought he just found something that was left there. And it happened to fit. Or maybe it was designed for him, but it wasn't necessarily a message that was to be sent to Turgen himself. And that reveal is so powerful. The last few steps in the hero's journey include the road back, the resurrection, the return, and the freedom to live. Number nine, the road back, the hero's journey, uh, be the hero begins the journey back after encountering new challenges and obstacles along the way. This would be this idea that like he is now in Gondolin, he's stuck, he can never leave, but we know that he has to leave at some point. So he deals with the things that are going on in the city, maybe some of the political struggles, some of that stuff, the knowledge that the enemy might be coming, all of that. And then there's a moment of resurrection. And then the return the place where the hero is truly changed by their experiences. Now, the resurrection part, let's go back quick, doesn't necessarily have to mean a literal death. It can be a symbolic death. It's a place where they fight against 
the things, the challenges, the enemy, whatever it is, and they seemingly lose. But in losing, they are resurrected. And it's only through that transition that they become powerful enough to win the day. And then the return, where they return home, transformed and changed by their experiences. In this case, it wouldn't be home home where he originally came from. It would be a new home, a new place, a marriage, a family, the starting of a home. And then the freedom to live. The hero achieves a state of freedom and enlightenment, often living happily ever after or in a state of balance and harmony. And that would have been Tour's hero's journey. And we get a significant way through it, but we don't quite get the end. We don't get the rest of it, at least on this zoomed in level at this detail. And how wonderful would that have been if we if we could have had that? Because it truly is a good story. If you think about it, the great stories of the first age, Baron and Luthien, Turin, and the, the children of Hurin, and then Tour, and the coming to Gondolin, or the fall of Gondolin. If only we had the rest of this story. But we don't. And so we have to dream. We have to imagine it. Or we have to write fan fiction, or something else. I hope you've enjoyed this look at Tour on a more zoomed-in detail. I hope you're excited for the other stories that we're going to be hitting on, up in very, very short order. The next episode, we'll be tackling the next one. They are shorter than this, and yet they are still interesting in their own ways. So I hope you're excited for that. And I hope uh, my terrible uh, voice <laughs> wasn't too much of a problem on this long extended episode. Uh, we'll be back to normal next week with a regular episode plus a bonus episode instead of this big double episode just for everybody. Uh, thanks for your patience with that. And thanks for being here. I really do appreciate you listening and your comments and being part of this community and you giving me the ability to dig back into all of this work in a very detailed way. It has been very enjoyable and I hope you're enjoying it as well. All right. Have a wonderful week. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast. If you'd like to learn more about other fantasy worlds, check out my other podcasts, the Elder Scrolls Lorecast, the Witcher Lorecast, and more at robotsradio.net. If you'd like to reach out, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a note on Twitter at robots underscore radio or join our amazing community on the Robots Radio Discord. There are links in the show notes or just search Robots Radio Discord or find the link on robotsradio.net. I'll see you next time.